Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hi, I'm Molly Jong-Fast. No relationship to Kim Jong-Un. I'm a left-wing pundit and a writer at The Atlantic and Vogue. And I'm Andy Levy, former Fox News and CNN HLN guy and current cable news conscientious objector. And I'm producer Jesse Cannon, and I'm here to make sure things don't go too far off the rails. We're here to have fun, smart conversations with the wisest and funniest people in science and media and politics that help make what's happening today clearer. Our world has been turned upside down, and on The New Abnormal, we'll talk about the people who got us into this mess and how we'll hopefully get ourselves out of it. What a fun show we have today. Charlie Sykes, who's the editor-at-large of The Bulwark, stops by to talk to us about the latest unraveling of Trump's Republican Party. Then we talk to Simon Ostrowski, who's a correspondent for PBS NewsHour, who will give us his perspective on Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. And also, I just want to preview this Sunday as we have a new public-free, not-behind-a-paywall episode coming with Molly and Andy and I talking the news and a blockbuster interview with Barbara McQuaid of the Sisters in Law podcast outlining how to prosecute Donald Trump in an actionable way. But first, let's have some fun. Andy Levy. Molly Jongfast. Why is the right worshiping Putin? It's a good question. The first thing you'd have to say is, is the right worshiping Putin? But then the answer is yes. At least a very, very, very large segment of them are. I think what it goes back to is, for me, if you want to get psychological about it, it's the same reason they worship Trump. It's this strong daddy figure that they crave. I don't know what kind of childhoods they had, um, <laughs> but for whatever reason, that's what they want. They, they love any sort of display of what they perceive as strength is such a turn on to them. They had four years of, of applying it all to Trump. And now, you know, he's, he's not the big guy anymore. So they just have sort of transferred it over to Putin. And it's so gross. Molly, it's so gross. I mean, I think it's interesting to listen to Trump clearly has a shtick down with Putin where he's like, you got to hand it to him. Like, no, you absolutely don't have to hand it to the <laughs> autocratic no dictator, right? I mean, like, he's like, well, you got it. You got Ukraine. Well, you know, he's sort of like, like, I think his whole shtick is like, I, I don't really want to handle it to hand it to him, but let's just do it. I think it's kind of fucked up. This has begot now another completely insane talking point that has flowered out of this first talking point. Okay, so you have Trump saying, you know, Putin's really a genius. Putin's really figured it out. And then you have people on the right. And this is like kind of like galaxy brain beyond galaxy brain saying, you see, Putin never tried this under Trump. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Believe me, I've seen a lot of that. Yeah. You know, oh, really? Putin didn't try this under the guy who was already undermining NATO and doing everything that Putin wants to do already? Huh. Shocking. I mean, it's interesting to me. I mean, I think it is worth for a second asking why Putin didn't do this under Trump. I mean, imagine if he had, Trump would be like, okay, he liked it. He used to have it. You know, maybe I can build <laughs> golf clubs, golf courses there. I mean, there's no world in which Trump would be like, you know, we have to rally NATO. I do think it is interesting. And I wonder how much of, of this is actually, you know, Putin knows that there's Americans have no appetite for war and that this will ultimately be hard for Biden, right? Because he's going to enact these sanctions. Gas prices are going to get more expensive. You're going to have people on the right saying, like, this didn't happen under Trump, even if, you know, the reason it didn't happen under Trump is maybe because Putin loves Trump. Remember, like, I feel like we're not looking at this whole picture, right? Which was in 2016 that the Russian Federation, they had troll farms, they influenced our elections. They wanted Trump to be president, right? So it is worth thinking about like Putin's long game with Trump too. 
Well, yeah. And, you know, and he probably felt he had to move now in case Trump gets reelected in 2024 and then he wouldn't want to do it again. So it's not that it's an unfair question and it, it's not unfair to ask, why did Putin pull shit like this under Obama and now he's pulling right. it again under Biden, but worse. Uh, but he didn't for, for the four years of Trump. That's a legitimate question. It's just the answers I've been seeing are, it's like, right. oh, he feared, he feared Trump. Right. He feared Trump and his masculine masculinity. Yeah. So masculine. And and that's when you just start rolling your eyes because it's like, you know what? Again, fair question. Like it it, right. it should be answered, but that's that's just clearly not the answer. You know, I mean you had you had Trump basically, you know, worshiping Putin for four years. Bullies love bullies, and Trump recognized that Putin was an even bigger bully than him. Yeah. So he sort of, you know, bent the knee, if you will. If that kept Putin from his little adventures, then it's not a bad thing. I don't yeah, I don't think he they would he would have kept it would have kept Putin from taking I mean, Putin really wanted to take Ukraine. Of course, of course. And the fact of the matter is I think if Trump were president now, Putin would still be doing what he's doing is, you know, as far as timing goes, Putin had under Obama, you know, got into Crimea and and had his his little fling with Georgia. You know, it could just be that he was just like, you know what, we're going to recharge and then we're going to go back in a couple more years. And I think so, again, that's whether Trump had won in 2020 or not. My guess is we'd be seeing the same thing now. Yeah, I also think it's relevant and important to I mean, right now is this very interesting time in American life where Americans have almost zero appetite for war, for foreign wars. Right. So we, this is an unprecedented time in our lives, right? Like I've never lived in this country and, and found this sort of culture be as anti-war, both on the left and the right in a way we've never seen. So it is, it's a very strange time too, because we have this conflict, you know, not unlike what we've seen with Kuwait, one country went in to occupy another and try to take it over. And there really is no appetite for intervention. Of course, the irony is like America did promise Ukraine that if they gave up their nukes, wah, wah, yeah. wah. I mean, <laughs> I know. Yeah. I've seen a lot of people say it was good that Ukraine gave up their nukes, but it doesn't seem like it was very good for Ukraine. At the time, it was definitely, a, it was a good thing for the world. I mean, so we thought, you know, when that happened, also, Ukraine was under a different government. You do see a lot of these people on the far right, you know, taking a sort of pro-Putin stance, which is very weird. And also, we had Dubya, just the person everyone wants to hear from, who you yeah. remember. <laughs> I mean, I think it's important <laughs> to remember with Dubya, even though now he's a painter, he has really, he is as much the reason we have Trump as anyone, right? I mean, he had every opportunity in the world to say, like, Trump bad, no, no. And at every point, he managed to just not. So, I mean, do he did the sort of the very least he could possibly do on that. Absolutely. Famously, he looked into Putin's eyes. <laughs> That's right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You and know, and saw his soul, saw his soul. which apparently was, was good. Um, so, yeah, he might not be the person to, you know, be jumping in now. But look, at least no love for, for W, but at, at least he's at least not. He's not pro-Putin. Yeah. I mean, at least in 2022, he's not pro-Putin. Congratulations. And <laughs> the bar, the bar is, is low, is Molly. Low. <laughs> Can we turn this conversation to some unlikely Putin fans? I've now seen Eric Prince, Steve Bannon, and Tucker Carlson basically writing love notes to Putin in the past 24 hours. What do you guys think is going on there? We were just talking about this, that it's actually a really good piece in the bulwark by Will Salatin about Tucker praising Putin. We know that he has gone, you know, he loves Viktor Orban. He has a sort of thing, but I don't know how it started, if it was contrarian or corruption probably contrarian because he makes a lot of money anyway. But like he has definitely dug himself into a radically pro-Putin hole. And the other night, you know, he was saying like, how do we know that you hate Putin? Does Putin want to cancel you? Does Putin want to call you a racist? <laughs> I mean... 
disgust. Well, I, I was actually struck when, when Tucker did his little thing. He was basically using the language that people use to defend sexual predators. When they say, well, uh, he never did that to me, you know, just drop the fact that he has literally killed journalists and he's got a, a big love for polonium and, right. and all that stuff. You know, right. on, t- on top of everything else, just, just strictly talking about what he's done to journalists, which not that Tucker's a journalist, but he's, you know, in an adjacent field, I guess. Right. Um, working at working at a channel that has news in its name, I guess, makes him adjacent to a journalist. <laughs> but but it really is. You would hear that when people would defend anyone from Harvey Weinstein on, on right. down. Like, well, I never saw that part of his personality. He never, you know, he he never treated me badly. And it's like, okay, well, that means nothing, <laughs> you know. And and it was so. And so that's that's the same language he was using. And. I hate to keep coming back to this because it sounds so pop psychology or whatever, but I remember saying this when I still worked at Fox and Lou Dobbs had me on his show. And this is when Trump was still running. I literally said on his show what I said earlier that, you know, there's this segment of conservatism that craves this strong daddy figure. Right. And and I it's just true. And it's just they have this sort of love for the authoritarian. They see that as strength. And then you've got people, there's some really, really bad tweets out there. Folks, if you're going on Twitter, be careful. <laughs> <laughs> there are some there so are some Mark, takes yeah there some are some takes, takes out there that will melt your eyes so margaret sullivan wrote a really smart piece in the washington post today and she talked about tucker carlson the last two days the fox opinion hosts have all gone pro putin i think tucker has been the worst Laura Ingram has been the second worst and Sean Hannity also. But one of the things she writes about is there was this judge, you know, one of the reasons why he hasn't been sort of held accountable for his speech is that Fox persuasively argues that given Mr. Carlson's reputation, any reasonable viewer arrives with the appropriate amount of skepticism about the statements he makes. So it's entertainment. And it's not news. Yeah, which is Fox's literal legal defense for right. Tucker Carlson, you know, as we know. But the viewers all think it's real. So, I of mean, course. And that's, yeah. and that's all that matters. And that's all that matters. Like, I go, you know, I think we've talked about this. I go back and forth, back and forth on whether Carlson means the stuff he says or whether it's a performance. And the bottom line is it doesn't fucking matter because right. the viewers view it as real. And that's the only thing that matters. But, you know, I was talking about this sort of Twitter stuff and you've got, just going back to this strong craving, this authority figure and strength. Ben Shapiro tweeting, Russia and China are focused on expanding <laughs> their spheres of influence via aggressive action. The West is focused on exploding the gender binary. It's that, it's Lisa Booth on Fox saying, I'm just glad we flew pride flags. I don't even know what that's fucking supposed to mean. Yeah. I mean, I would say that's an interesting phenomenon, which is that Ben Shapiro has one joke. It's that trans people are bad. <laughs> no, he has, I know. Right? Because, God, you know, no one better to pick on than, you know, this group where they have this high rate of suicide or they're, you know, it's a very tough situation. You have all these people discriminating against you. And then you have Ben Shapiro making terrible, the same terrible joke again and again and again. And this is that joke. Right. But it's also what they believe. They believe that somehow treating gay and trans people with respect is a sign of weakness. Right. And they think that Putin thinks, oh, I can invade Ukraine because America is, you know, treating gay and trans people with respect. Like in their heads, right. that is how the world works. It would be like a fascinating psychological study, except it's dangerous and it's harmful to gay and trans people here yeah. in America and around the world. And so in, it's it's just fucking disgusting, but it's what they do. And Clay Travis, another guy, right. he says, he tweets, Autocratic leaders believe in hyper-masculinity, raw physical power. America has spent decades fetishizing soft, cuddly, emotional power. Putin and Xi don't respect it. This is the result. It's like, this is how these people think. Right. And it's it's just, it's so gross. It's, it's basically, they're teenagers. They're yeah. all teenagers looking for daddy to spank them or something or to yell well, at them or to tell them what to do. I also think they want to be right. And they feel like Putin, he has all these racist tropes that they like. But I think we need to turn um, an eye to the Louis Gohmert of the Senate, one Thomas Tuberville. <laughs> I, I don't, I, you know, whenever I invoke his name, I'm reminded of the time, these salad days, when I thought that the House was stupider than the Senate and that there weren't as many stupid people in the Senate. But now with T- Superville 
and Marsha Blackburn. Uh, I think that that has changed. Tommy Tuberville believes that Putin is invading Ukraine because Russia is a communist country that needs more land. (laughs) He can't feed his people, says Tuberville. It's a communist country, so he can't feed his people. They need more farmland for farming. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, I I mean... I don't even know what to tell you on that. Like, it's not 1960. I just, I don't. <laughs> They're not I even mean, a the communist idea, country anymore. But the, well, sure. that's the thing. The idea that it's a communist country, like if it were a communist country, why are all these right wing people supporting him? That's really interesting. <laughs> that's right. That would be fascinating. You know, yeah. I mean, I get, I guess, I guess Donald Trump and all those people love communism. <laughs> that's really interesting. I hadn't thought of that. Hey folks, if you haven't heard, every single week we do a special bonus episode for Beast Inside, the Daily Beast membership program. Sometimes we interview senators like Cory Booker or the folks who explain what's happening behind the scenes in media like Jim Acosta or Soledad O'Brien. Sometimes we just have fun and talk to our favorite comedians and actors like Busy Phillips or Billy Eichner. And sometimes we just have friends around to analyze what's happening in the news. You can get all of our episodes in your favorite podcast app of choice by becoming a Beast Inside member, where you'll support the Beast's fearless journalism, as well as getting full access to podcasts and articles. To become a member, head to newabnormal.thedailybeast.com. That's newabnormal.thedailybeast.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Charlie Sykes is the editor-at-large of The Bulwark, as well as the host of The Bulwark podcast and author of How the Right Lost Its Mind. Welcome back to The New Abnormal, Charlie Sykes. Hey, thanks. It's been a while. I'm so excited to have you back, but you've been here before. Anyway, I'm glad to have you back, and I have so many things I want to talk to you about. I kept saying we have to talk to Charlie because, in some ways, Wisconsin is becoming the center of the country. It's always been the center of the country, Molly. (laughs) This is not a new development. Let me show you a map. (laughs) Right there. Right. It is the center. So you have this very exciting Senate race. With Ron Johnson, can you talk to our listeners? Because besides being an incredible pundit and talker, you really know Wisconsin politics in a way that few do. Yes, and have deep regrets about it as well, including Ron Johnson, which is one of my favorite subjects. Ron Johnson's brain has been broken by the Trump era, and he's the most vulnerable Republican, I think, a Republican incumbent, but he, he could still win. Because this is a very evenly divided state. It looks like it's going to be a Republican year, and it's not clear who the Democrats are going to put up against him. So the big question is whether or not it is possible to be too crazy, at least once was possible to be too crazy and too embarrassing for Wisconsin. I don't know if that's the case anymore. We'll find out. What do you think it is? I mean, I feel like Ron Johnson is a pretty good example. Isn't this only his second term? No, this will be his third term. Third term, right. But I mean, he hasn't been in the Senate for decades and decades. I mean, what do you think happened to break his brain? I do not fucking know. (laughs) There was a while when I tried to come up with various theories about it, because I was trying to think, how did he get from this normal sort of Wall Street Journal reading businessman from Oshkosh, Wisconsin, to Ronanon? What drew him down those rabbit holes? I really don't know, because the thing that struck me about him in the beginning was that he was not starstruck by being in Washington. He was very, very skeptical of the conventional wisdom and very much his own man. I really thought that he was going to be kind of a maverick in the mode of, say, William Proxmire, our legendary senator from Wisconsin. Instead, he turned out to model himself on Joseph McCarthy, our other legendary (laughs) senator from Wisconsin. (laughs) Not great. So he's fallen in 
with a bad crowd. He hangs within a very sort of extreme MAGA bubble at the moment. Often when you read the the uh, craziest things that he says, it's on a talk show based in Madison, Wisconsin, by a host who for years would push gateway pundit type conspiracy theories. So maybe that's where he's gone. Molly, I don't know. And I've been asked this question. Oh, no, I don't. I can't explain him. Can you explain a little more about this show in Madison, Wisconsin, that pushes gateway pundit conspiracy theories? Look, there's a range of hosts. And of course, I was a conservative host in Wisconsin, in in Milwaukee. But then there were always the ones that were, how can I put this without saying really, really sketchy? Okay, really sketchy. (laughs) It's a host named Vicki McKenna, who I always kept at arm's length because she just had this penchant for pushing the conspiracy theories, the stuff that you would look at and you go, that's crazy. And I'm saying crazy before 2015. Right. She's become one of his big boosters. And he really, and I mean, look, he came up as a candidate during the 2010 election, the Tea Party era, very much attuned to talk radio, thinks that talk radio is the genuine voice of the base. And it still may be, given what's happened to the Republican conservative base in Wisconsin. And Vicki McKenna whips him along to many of these conspiracy theories. So look, but I don't know. He's a senior United States senator. I don't think he's a stupid guy. I actually had a really good friend who went to work for him as one of his aides who used to be a columnist for the local newspaper, one of the smartest guys I know. And he apparently also lost his mind. Maybe it's (laughs) polonium in the water cooler there. I would check it. (laughs) You and I, I feel like, have talked about this a lot historically, but not recently, which is I think a lot of us thought that after Trump lost, the Republican Party would come back to, at least I sort of thought, if Trump loses, maybe the Republican Party will sort of get normal again. Did you think that? I think that I thought it would be a long process. And obviously, look, Trump was a product of a pre-existing condition. I mean, so the dysfunction was there. It was going to be there. And you could see some of it accelerating. But certainly after January 6th, I thought that there would be a moment at which the Republican Party would say, okay, we went on that binge. Let's sober up. Let's mixing on my metaphor, take the off ramp here. And that there would be at least be some movement toward a post-Trump era. Instead, everything has gotten worse. And Wisconsin's a perfect example of that, where we used to be kind of the redoubt of anti-Trump Republicanism, at least up until the primary in 2016. And of course, this was the state where Paul Ryan used to be the rock star here. But Paul Ryan's been displaced, been pushed aside, and it's become increasingly Trumpy. And what's interesting is that the establishment here decided it was going to go along and appease the Trumpists. They would throw a little bit of red meat. They figured that they could grow the crocodile in the bathtub and it wouldn't get big and come out and eat them. And so they would try to appease that, the MAGA conspiracy folks out there. And nothing they have done has worked. You had the Speaker of the State Assembly who flew down on a private jet to go kiss Donald Trump's rear end at one point about the election, points a bogus investigation of the election, which nobody seriously questioned. And yet there's this massive now campaign here among the my pillow guy Republicans to get rid of the speaker because <laughs> he isn't going far enough. So now the, the new standard is that you actually have to rescind Wisconsin's electoral votes. And the, and the one guy The one complete batshit crazy guy who's pushing that is on the phone on a regular basis with Donald Trump. Mike Lindell came in and endorsed him. Mike Flynn endorsed him. And he's running for governor now. And so what's happened is the crazies are on the march. And the establishment, their problem is that they're kind of crazy, too, because now they're going, wait, 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 we're pushing this invest. We want a jail election. of it. I mean, it's amazing watching, especially if you've known these guys. Yeah, it's so interesting to me that I mean, I feel like at every point I've said to myself, at least like, well, this will be the end of it. This can't keep going this badly. These people can't keep doing this. No, but it seems like it just keeps going on. It keeps going on and it keeps getting worse. The analogy that keeps coming to my mind is watching a group of dope dealers out there constantly feeling the need to sell more potent stuff. And because you have to keep ratcheting it up, you have to keep turning the dial. So again, Wisconsin has a long tradition of real intense political engagement. But to see the crazy take this prominent role, and again, at the top of the ticket, you have Ron Johnson, one of the craziest United States senators, a lot of competition there. (laughs) But he's not out of step with the Republican base right now. Right. I mean, I think that is the thing that's the most interesting. Now, I want to talk to you about what's happening in foreign affairs with this Vladimir Putin fellow. Were you 
shocked at the Trump interview with Buck Sexton? See, okay, now that's a trick question. <laughs> because it's it's a yes and a no. Because yes, it's incredibly shocking that the former president of the United States would come on while Vladimir Putin is invading a neighboring country and talk about how smart and brilliant and savvy he was. That is genuinely shocking. On the other hand, <laughs> it is exactly what you'd expect from Donald Trump. This is a guy who has been sucking up to Vladimir Putin for decades now. This is somebody who, when he was asked, even by Bill O'Reilly, who's pretty deplorable himself, well, you know, he's a killer. Well, we kill people too, Bill. Right. Who sided with Vladimir Putin over his own government in Helsinki. So uh, you run down this. This is Donald Trump and the bromance continues. So no, it's exactly what you'd expect. And still, Molly, it's shocking to think about this guy coming out with this groveling appeasement and watching the whole MAGA wing of the Republican Party become, I mean, it's one thing to be anti-Biden. That's what they do. But they become either pro-Putin or, ready for this, anti-anti-Putin, which is, <laughs> okay, true. well, we're not exactly pro-Putin, but I mean, Putin's no Justin Trudeau. I mean, at least he's not, <laughs> he's not oppressing us. He's not a dictator. I mean, there's no parody of it because that's pretty much what they're saying. You got Tucker Carlson, who is channeling Russian propaganda nightly on Fox News. And for some of us, that's a pretty remarkable development. What do you think about that? Like last night, Tucker Carlson did this soliloquy where he said, how do we know Putin is really bad? Let us challenge our notions. I'm just asking questions kind of thing. Do you think Rupert Murdoch is OK with that? Do you think Lachlan Murdoch is OK with that? Or do you think that Tucker Carlson is just beyond the control of anyone at this point? Well, there was a period where I raised that question seriously, like, would Rupert Murdoch continue to tolerate the racism and the disinformation and the lying? I wrote an open letter in Politico magazine to Paul Ryan, who's a member of the Fox board, saying, OK, Paul, if you ever want to draw a red line, this would be it. And this was months ago. This was when Fox News was peddling the big lie about the election, when Fox News was peddling disinformation about the coronavirus and the vaccines, that disinformation that might be killing people. This was when Fox News and Tucker Carlson were pushing the Great Replacement Theory, which five minutes ago was recognized as a virulent white nationalist, white supremacist meme. And if he was willing to tolerate all of that and look the other way for all of that, why would this be any different? So clearly, he's given a green light to Tucker Carlson, and Tucker Carlson is not alone on the right in showing that, in fact, they kind of have a soft spot for authoritarianism. Hey, who knew that, right? Who could have guessed? <laughs> they actually kind of like authoritarians. Well, and they also want to go to war with both Canada and, I mean, the interesting thing about that statement, too, was Trump went all in with the propaganda about peacekeepers and then was like, maybe we should send peacekeepers to our southern border. So half the party wants to invade Mexico and the other half wants to go to war with Canada. Yes. OK, you can't make that up. Part of Donald Trump, and I want to quote Tim O'Brien from Bloomberg, it says you have to understand that he's a seven year old who really just gotten big. And there's a part of him that's really, really kind of excited by all those tanks and soldiers and everything. And he wished he could have parades and wouldn't it be cool if he could have Vladimir Putin's army and all of those missile systems down on the Mexican border? Wouldn't that be good? That'd be even cooler than a wall. <laughs> and you get that sense of sort of the excitement that he has about that sort of thing. This is a guy that at one point in 1990, remember that Playboy interview that he gave where he was contrasting the Soviets with the Chinese and he was saying that uh, Mikhail Gorbachev was disappointing because he just hadn't been oppressive enough. In contrast to the Chinese who had showed real strength when they acted in Tiananmen Square. Oh, Jesus. This guy has had this soft spot for international thuggery, violence, and cruelty for a long time. And yet I feel like this is an old story here, right? I am not breaking any news for you. But here we have Vladimir Putin invading Ukraine and Donald Trump calling into the Clay and Buck show. <laughs> I mean, seriously, you're the former president of the United States and you're talking about international affairs on the fucking Clay and Buck show? <laughs> or is it the Buck and Clay show? He also does bar mitzvahs and weddings. <laughs> 
No, this is what we have to deal with. But as you know, Molly, a clown with a flamethrower still has a flamethrower. Okay. But I mean, you don't see a world where like Republicans, you don't see a world where they say, well, like this is too much. We got to. No, we've played this game too much. We've seen this again and again and again. I know that probably Mitch McConnell is lying there in his Emperor Palpatine bed, you know, thinking, shit, I had a chance during the impeachment to end this. I didn't do it. Fuck. But that was it. It's not going to happen. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's good to be back. Thank you. Simon Ostrowski is a special correspondent for PBS NewsHour. Welcome to the new abnormal, Simon. Thank you. I'm so excited to have you here. And so you have a long, long history covering Ukraine, Russia, separatists, all of it. You're in America right now. You're watching this. What is your sense of what's happening? Well, what's happening is a total and utter catastrophe, which most of us outside of the intelligence community couldn't imagine was possible just a few weeks ago. There was so much talk of this being Putin posturing, setting a high negotiating position to to work down from so that he could exact some kind of concessions from the West, from NATO, from Ukraine, whether it was about the Minsk Accords or whether it was about NATO expansion. And now it turns out that actually all he wanted from the very beginning was to essentially conquer Ukraine and to wipe it off the map, which I think is the kind of behavior that we haven't really seen since the Second World War. Although people keep saying that these events are unprecedented. They're not totally unprecedented. I mean, we saw Russia invade Georgia back in 2008. And you were there, right? I was a journalist in the South Caucasus region from 2004 until 2007. I wasn't in Georgia in 2008. Right. The point I was trying to make was that Russia remained a member of the international community. It didn't become a pariah even after it occupied a large chunk of Georgian territory. And I think that set the stage for what happened in Crimea in 2014 uh, and Eastern Ukraine in 2014, when I was a reporter there for Vice News from the very beginning, when rather soft sanctions by the standard of the sanctions that are being deployed today were imposed against Russia, setting the stage for what happened uh, overnight, which is an invasion from multiple points around Ukraine, uh, targeting uh, military infrastructure. Unfortunately, there have already been a lot of uh, civilian casualties as well, because Russian weaponry isn't exactly the most accurate. Some kind of a, a blitzkrieg that Putin's been planning for a long time uh, in order to retake Ukraine, in order for him to satisfy, it seems like, uh, his pride. It seems to me, and again, this is like really not my wheelhouse, but it seems to me like the Biden administration did as best they could with the, you know, they kept trying to give out information. Do you feel like they had good information and do you feel they did gave it out in the right way? I think so. Um, I think that the Biden administration was getting this intelligence that was telling them that the Russians were preparing to do exactly what they're doing now. But we're at the same time hoping that it was a bluff right. and, and trying to call that bluff, call it out and get it out into the open uh, in order to essentially prevent Russia from doing what it was planning and to rally support with the European allies. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, when they first said that war was imminent and it was going to happen in the next couple of days, they were essentially throwing down a gauntlet to Putin saying, you know, hey, buddy, we're not going to give you what you want on NATO. Uh, the ball's in your court. You know, if you want to invade and be viewed as the 21st century's next Hitler, um, then that's on you. And I think they were probably expecting with everything to be laid out like on a silver platter that the Russians would decide that this is something that they couldn't do because they would face international condemnation from everybody about what they were planning. And that was the calculus that a lot of Ukraine and Russia watchers, watchers thought that the Russians were operating under. I think the bigger problem here is that the Biden administration never had the leverage and the deterrence that it actually needed in order to stop Russia from doing what it needs to do, uh, what it wanted to do. Because it's very difficult for the State Department to go sit down at a table with the Russians 
and tell them and negotiate a deal with them when the worst thing that they can threaten is economic sanctions and isolation, when Russia has already been sanctioned and it's so isolated already. Um, you know, they have to be able to have the threat of some kind of punitive action. I'm not saying here that America should go to war with Russia, but in order for America to be a credible uh, negotiator with the threat of something behind its back, you know, the people sitting across the table from America need to believe that that's a possibility. But not only is a direct confrontation, a fight with Russia, not a possibility for politicians in America, it's not even possible for them to threaten a military yeah. confrontation because that's, right. that's where we are two decades after September 11th, after the George Bush administration Bush spent all of our capital fighting an unnecessary war in Iraq. You know, the American public is so fatigued uh, by those unending wars, um, which we've only recently pulled out of, that the Russians know that the Americans are never going to put any skin in the game. They're not even going to threaten to put skin in the game. So that's a very difficult position to negotiate from. Very few tools in your box. Right. My question is, though, you could kick Russia out of the international banking system, right? I mean, that could happen. Biden could do that. I mean, is he waiting for bipartisan sanctions? Like, it seems like there are a stronger route of sanctions. I mean, they could seize. I mean, there are all these oligarchs living in London and New York and Paris. I mean, you could get very aggressive with their stuff, which they would not like. I mean, don't you think that is at least a way to sort of get in there? I think those sanctions are coming and they've already begun to start deploying them. I'm not up on like what are the latest banks that have been hit today as opposed to yesterday when it was VEB Bank and I think Promsyaz Bank that were hit, you know, the fifth largest bank in Russia and, and then uh, I think the eighth largest bank in Russia. I think the larger problem here is that the people who are calling the shots in Russia, namely Putin and the the Siloviki, the, the, the security people, the, you know, the, the security ministers and the defense ministers and the intelligence uh, directors and so forth, you know, they're not very exposed in the West. And if they are in terms of assets that they have there um, and their entire political careers depend on loyalty to Putin and their assets are in Russia and they right. are an elite in Russia and sanctioning them is not going to strip them of their elite status in Russia. Banning visa travel isn't going to do anything either because they've already been sanctioned. They're not trapped. They're not. These aren't, you know, your Roman Abramoviches of the world who don't wield the kind of influence um, you would expect an oligarch to wield because they're not true oligarchs anymore. Right. I mean, you know, an oligarch is a very rich person who also wields polit political influence in a country. The Roman Abramoviches and Deripaskas of the world um, don't have that kind of influence in Russia anymore because Putin took it away from them. So the people who do wield influence there, they are essentially immune to anything that the sanctions could do, but they're the only ones who matter. So I think that, you know, any kind of sanctions package has to bank on going further than uh, hurting the elites. You know, it right. has to be, and I think the calculation is that we're going to have to hurt the public in order to try to uh, generate some kind of grassroots opposition to the regime. But, you know, I think even that is a pipe dream. Right. I mean, and I also feel like haven't the Russian people gone through enough? I mean, like we see, I mean, You've been in Russia, in the separatist areas, and in Ukraine. I mean, the people of these countries don't want this war. It's very difficult to... I mean, is that true? That's a question. I think it's very difficult to make any kind of a generalization like that because, you know, the, the polling that takes place in Russia can be highly right. inaccurate because people are afraid to say what they really believe. Um, and then, you know, it, it might be the case that many people buy into the propaganda that's uh, on TV in Russia day in and day out, which is portraying this conflict as something that's been instigated not by Russia, but by Ukraine itself and by the West. Um, and so that in, in, in the view of somebody who watches Channel One day in and day out, right. th this is something that the West is responsible for and, right. and, and Russia's hand was forced. And therefore, you know, the brave 
leader Putin is doing the right thing to protect them from the evil imperialists around the world who just don't want to let Russia get up from its knees. I mean, there are people in Moscow marching last night. I mean, at, marching in a place tonight. where there's there's, you know, right. a couple of thousand people who marched in Moscow and maybe roughly the same amount of people marching in St. Petersburg and a few other large cities around Russia. And, you know, we've heard like 2000 people have been arrested. Yeah. I mean, that that seems very brave in a yeah, country this isn't like the Russia. Million man march that we saw before the invasion of Iraq. Putin will arrest you for doing things like that in a way they won't in the States. I mean, the stakes are much, much higher for the Russian people. Right. Absolutely. And I think there are tons and tons of Russian people, of course, who would uh, never want um, war. And they see this as a very shameful day and that this is going to be a stain on Russia's history forever. I mean, that was the that was the thought that I woke up with this morning when I started scrolling through my Twitter and looking at videos of Russian attack helicopters flying over an airfield outside of Kiev. It was just this profound feeling of shame because, you know, I'm Russian myself. I've lived here most of my life, but I I was born in Russia and I was just wondering, is this what it felt like to be German in 1939 when your country goes and attacks another unprovoked? I mean, it's how we feel. I'm, I'm telling you, it's how I felt when the Gulf War, with the second Gulf War, like we protested in the streets because... We couldn't believe that our leaders were invade, and it just was so insane. So, I mean, I relate. I think. Well, I, I mean, it, it's it's <laughs> it's awful for me as a Jewish American Russian. I've had to feel shame for a lot of military conflicts that have taken place. <laughs> and um, maybe more about your general feelings <laughs> about shame, but yes, I mean, ultimately, it's the leaders who are doing this. It's not the people, which I think it's important to remember. I mean, even if there's a lot of violence happening. But I, I just want to get I want to get back to Ukraine for a minute. I, you see all these videos and pictures of people of a lot of people who are reservists. Can you explain to our listeners a little bit about that? Because I read somewhere that the reservists are between 18 and 60 years old. The military reserves, they get called up in an emergency, an extreme situation like this one. And, you know, in many countries that face a persistent military threat, men of fighting age, which, you know, can vary. In some countries, it's 40 years old. In some countries, it's up to 50 years old. I guess in Ukraine, it's up to 60. I didn't actually know that. It's anybody. It's anybody's guess uh, how effective these essentially, you know, partisan groups are going to be. I want to be hopeful, and I want to think that uh, Ukraine is going to be able to put up some kind of a resistance to this onslaught, and that the Russians are going to be surprised by the level of resistance that they end up facing, because they've been locked in a room. I mean, the leadership uh, with each other in an echo chamber of their own delusions for so long that this is going to be a slap in the face to them. But I've learned over years of covering this war, and covering Russia for that matter, that that kind of hope only leads to disappointment later on. Um, When I was covering uh, Crimea in 2014, at the very early stages of that crisis developing, I remember being led into the Ukrainian naval headquarters in Simferopol by the spokesperson for the Ukrainian Navy, um, who wanted to show me that uh, the Russian military uh, had taken over parts of the headquarters and that there was a very tense standoff inside the complex between Ukrainian and Russian soldiers um, who were on opposite sides of the complex of buildings. And, you know, he was giving me a tour and showing me that the Ukrainians had locked down their weapons into lockers in order to prevent some kind of a provocation from happening or somebody accidentally firing a shot because it was very uncertain days and they didn't know which way this would go. Um, But he was outraged at the fact that the Russians weren't admitting to their participation in this and these, you know, very well-equipped Russian commandos um, were claiming to be people's defense units. You know, I just remember how angry he was at what was going on. And he, we went around the back of the base because the front gate was being held by both protesters and the Russian military. And we climbed over a wall uh, and some Ukrainian soldiers helped me over and we jumped down into the courtyard and then started doing this tour of filming and he was showing me all of it. This was a this was a a person that I felt that I understood. And a couple of weeks later, Crimea was annexed and Russia declared it independent first and then it annexed Crimea. 
I was already on the Ukrainian side of the line of control. And uh, I found out through Facebook that this man had switched sides and joined the Ukrainian Navy. Sorry, the Russian Navy. That was shocking to me at the time. And, uh, you know, I, these days I've learned not to be shocked. I'm, I'm very pessimistic, and I'm not saying that that is going to be a pattern that is necessarily going to be repeated. But I think, you know, when your family lives in a place and the consequences of not falling in line are so severe, right. I, I believe the stories that have come out about the Russians uh, having put together lists of people that they're going to arrest when they take control of cities. Oh, I people, believe it too. People who have been vocally uh, supportive of, of Ukraine and critical of uh, Russia's campaign in Ukraine. Um, journalists, human rights activists, artists, musicians, whoever, you know, people of any prominence, basically everybody except for the babushka who sells kielbasa at the local store. I think they're willing to arrest and put those people in jail and worse. Yeah. Um, and the humanitarian catastrophe that is going to unfold in slow motion after Russia starts taking over these cities is going to be so terrifying to behold that it's that you, I, you know, I won't be able to condemn anybody for making the decision that that Ukrainian naval officer made back in 2014 when he joined the Russian Navy, because it's very scary. All right. So my last question for you, because we're almost out of time, where do you see this ending? Like, does Putin take, I mean, I've now seen some military people say, well, maybe Putin takes half of Ukraine, maybe Putin takes that, you know, Putin takes all of Ukraine. I feel like I, I, I understand the question. I feel like it's like a version of the question that everybody is always asking about Putin, which is what does Putin want? Right. right? Which nobody knows. I, and I disagree with that assessment, Molly. Right. Um, uh, I think Putin wants as much as he can get. Right. Putin is going to take as much as he can get away with taking. Putin has to be stopped. He's not going to be stopped on his own. If he can take Kiev, he'll take Kiev. People are thinking like, well, is he going to sort of leave a rump Ukraine that's cut off from the sea and sandwiched between Russian-controlled territory Belarus and Poland, like the sort of island of territory in Eastern Europe, turn, turn Ukraine into a smaller Poland? I mean, sure, if the Ukrainians stop him there, that's right, what he'll do. But otherwise, do. he takes it all, right? Why wouldn't he? If yeah. he can, he will. In Russian, there's a saying that you can grab anything that isn't fastened down well. And I think that's 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 Putin's MO. If if it's not bolted down, he'll take everything, including the kitchen sink. Yeah, I think that's right too. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm so sorry that you have to watch this on television. Yeah, you and me both. But thanks for the invitation. It's been cathartic speaking to you. What's crazier than QAnon? More outlandish than Pizzagate? And scarier than a Mexican getaway with Ted Cruz? The answer is what the American right wing has planned next. Be one of the first to listen to Fever Dreams, the new podcast from the Daily Beast tracking the conspiracy slingers, orange acolytes, and straight-up grifters pushing to retake power. Every Wednesday, hosts Swin Subasang and Will Summer check in on the movement of the radical right. Head to thedailybeast.com slash podcasts or your favorite podcast player to catch the first episode and get subscribed. That's Fever Dreams, which you can subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts. Who is your fuck that guy? Uh, my fuck that guy for today is Kyle Rittenhouse. You may remember Kyle from killing some people. But, but not murdering now- them. Just killing not murdering him. He, he was found uh, not not guilty of murder. Yes. Right. And with that new lease on life. Yes. He just went halfway across the country with an AR-15 or whatever his weapon of choice was. And yeah. Anyway, he's now, he tells Tucker Carlson, that he and his team are launching the Media Accountability Project as a tool to hold the media accountable for the lies they say and to deal with them in court. He's suing LeBron James, noted member of the media. Yes, or at least he said suing, he's going to sue LeBron James, mm, noted right. member of the media. The problem here is this is a you know this is a kid, and this is a kid who is getting very very bad advice from people who honestly do not 
understand the First Amendment. And he's going to find out very quickly that he, <laughs> that nothing LeBron's, James said, uh, is actionable in court. It, it's just, you know, it's fuck that guy to Kyle Rittenhouse, but it's also fuck the people around him for yeah. letting him go out there and do this and basically putting him, you know, making him basically a sacrificial lamb for their completely idiotic politics uh, where they think the media is the enemy of the state and they love saying stuff like that. Of all people, Tucker Carlson knows that it's really hard to sue the media and win. (laughs) So, you know, he should have been the first person telling Kyle you know, hey, this is this ain't going to work for you. But, you know, on the other hand, he's probably going to raise a lot of money off of it. And it won't matter that there are no successful lawsuits. So I guess it is going to work in in that sense. And that's probably the only sense that matters. So fuck that guy and all guys like him. Yeah, you know, it's 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 funny because it you really do. You see all these people on the right who are so excited for someone like Kyle Ren has to sue the media. And it's like they don't realize that Fox News actually... Like, if you're going to go and look for malicious intent, right? Yeah. It doesn't end well. No no more ripe environment. But maybe with all that money, he can uh, get a better fashion stylist because that tie was something. Yeah. <laughs> so my fuck that guy is, uh, I want to make a point here and say that we don't really know what's happened with the New York City criminal investigation of Donald Trump. And so my fuck that guy is not necessarily Alvin Bragg because we don't know what <laughs> happened with Cy Vance. We don't know exactly why these two lawyers resigned. This is the charges against the Trump Organization Chief Financial Officer Alan Weisselberg and who is going to go on trial this summer. This is about giving the IRS false, false. like low estimates right. on the worth, the yes, worth yes. of his properties to avoid paying taxes. These two prosecutors resigned. The question is, we don't know because they're not talking yet, but the feeling is that Bragg is not going to keep going with this inquiry and that then Trump will have escaped criminal charges, at least in this jurisdiction, right? There's still the Georgia, you got to find me votes case. There's still a bunch of other cases there. And then hopefully there's this guy called Merritt fucking Garland, who we hope has got a master plan to lock Trump up because for his, uh, because otherwise this was not good. So Uh, I'm not going to say it's Alvin Bragg, but I am going to say, like, this guy needs to be held accountable. We all know he's done all these crimes. Like, somebody has to be the first person to hold this guy accountable. And and you see the civil case is is ongoing, and Tish James continues to work hard, and now she's going to have these people. And remember, Tish James decided not to run for governor so she could finish this case, which is really unusual in our politics to have somebody put— the job before the ambition. And so I really do hope that these people who have been installed to uphold the rule of law actually do that even when the guy is famous. Yeah, I mean, look, as you said, thank God for Tish James and hopefully something will come of that. And uh, Molly, I do think you just need to be patient with Merrick Garland. (laughs) Um, You know, I've noticed a lot of times you seem to be getting angry at him and he has a plan, Molly. You have to trust the plan. That's all I'm going to (laughs) say. Jesus Christ. On that note, we'll wrap this episode of The New Abnormal from The Daily Beast. In future episodes, we'll be talking to smart folks from The Daily Beast and beyond from media, culture, politics, and science who will help us understand what's happening to our country and the world. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and share the show on social media. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again on the next episode. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.